0: Bibles with me this morning. Turn to Acts chapter nine. <clears throat> We're going to talk today about being a new creature. A new creature. Acts chapter nine, and I'm going to read verses one through eight. So, if you would stand with me as, as I read Acts chapter nine, beginning at verse number one, and we'll read through to verse eight. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And i now pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would use the words that I will speak to speak to the people of God. Change us today. Strengthen us. Help us to, help us to understand what it really means to be a new creature in Christ. And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for this. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you ever watched the program Dragnet? How many of you ever watched Dragnet? I used to watch Dragnet when I was a boy. My father and I would watch Dragnet. And um, Sergeant Friday. And Sergeant Friday was a very matter-of-fact guy. Just the facts, please, ma'am. But there was always a disclaimer read at the end of that show and at the beginning, and it went like this. The names have been changed to protect... The innocent. The Bible tells us that we are new creatures. And I want to look today at a man who had a name change. He started out with the name Saul of Tarsus, and he ended up with the name Paul. And I want us to look at some of the characteristics and some of the things that surround this this change in Paul. But to do that, we need to actually begin back in Acts chapter 6. So if you'll turn with me there. Acts chapter 6. And let's look at verse number 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So, it actually begins here. And we see Stephen being chosen by the church as as a deacon, the first deacons of the church. And Stephen was a devout man. And Stephen was a bold man, and went forth and and proclaimed Christ. Now turn with me, let's look at uh, chapter 7. And let's look beginning at verse number 54. And after, after Stephen had preached a very bold and aggressive message, the Pharisees didn't like it too much. Now look at verse 54 of chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, and of course this is Stephen, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now look at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. We see this man Saul. This man Saul was, chapter 8, verse 3 says, was making havoc of the church. He was hunting down Christians, and he wasn't hunting them down to, to pin medals on him. He was hunting them down to see them put to death, or to put into prison. Now, back in chapter 9 again, we, we, we read a moment ago, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way... Whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Saul was going about his life as he did every other day hunting down Christians. That was his entire purpose for life. His entire motivation every morning when he woke up was to go out and find people who who believed in this Jesus and bring them in to to be prosecuted and to be bound in chains or put to death. Now, this trip taken by Saul on the way to Damascus was a life-changing journey indeed. It was a journey that would alter everything in his life. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 state, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are a new creature. Once we are born again, we are a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. Now, Scripture records for our admonition the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, And to Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles. And with the time that we have this morning, I would like for us to examine this transformation. The first thing I want us to see this morning is Saul's condition. We read a moment ago in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. Saul hated this new sect of religion. He hated those that called themselves disciples of Christ. In fact, as we saw earlier, he was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He held the coats of the men who slew Stephen. In today's legal system, Saul would have been guilty of aiding and abetting a criminal in the commission of a felony. While Saul himself did not actually throw any stones, he was certainly contributory to the martyrdom of Stephen. He would be guilty of being an accomplice to murder. So we see the condition of this man Saul. He wasn't a very pleasant individual. He was hunting Christians. If you and I were alive in his day, he would be hunting you. Seeking you out. Now, there's, there's a couple of things I want to note about Saul. First, I want you to notice this, that Saul was a sinner. He was a sinner. As with each of the twelve disciples called by Christ, Saul was a sinner. And each of us here this morning, as we sit in this in, in the pew in this church, we are sinners. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 states, For all have sinned. Not some, not many, but all sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John tells us in, 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 in his first epistle, uh, verse 8 of the first chapter, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Often is the time I've been out visiting, witnessing, and people will say, I'm not, I don't sin. Well, you might be able to go a few hours... You might be able to go a few days without sin. But the truth of the matter is, we're all, every one of us, sinners. Now, it is easy for us to see the condition of Saul of Tarsus this morning. Scripture clearly states his condition. We, we read of his life, and, and, and we are appalled by this man, Saul. It's easy to see what type of person he was. And it's easy for people to look at him and say, well, yeah, he needed to be saved. <laughs> Absolutely. But what about you and I this morning? Our condition is not so readily known. One of my favorite songs is I'm Just a Sinner Saved by Grace. I love that song. The words are as this. If you could see what I once was, if you could go with me, Back to where I started from, then I know you would see the miracle of love that brought me to his sweet embrace and made me what I am today, a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. When I stood condemned to death, he took my place. Now I grow and breathe in freedom with each breath of life I take, loved and forgiven. Back with the living, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. Now the truth of the matter is that most, if not all of us, would be very quick to condemn Saul of Tarsus for his lack of vision and his intolerance towards Christians. But it is very important that we all remember that we too are sinners. Saved sinners, yes, but sinners nonetheless. We had better be careful not to forget this. In Psalm 40, in verses 1 and 2, David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. Listen, friends, we had better not forget what we were before the Lord saved us. For we were all condemned to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. We're all sinners. Some here today are sinners saved by grace, but some here today may not be. Remember what you were and where you came from, lest we forget that but by the grace of Almighty God, we too would be hopelessly and helplessly lost. So first this morning, I want you to see that Saul was a sinner. But secondly, I want you to notice that Saul was zealous. Saul of Tarsus believed that he controlled his own destiny. He believed that he could alter the course of religion in his day. He believed that he was doing the right thing for his God. And this is the case of many men today. As you and I sit here this morning, men, women, and children are involved in what they believe to be worship of God all across this nation. They have been led into false worship and led into false doctrine by men of clever craftiness, men who who seek to make merchandise of them. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, we read, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgments now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. And there are many today who are proclaiming a false gospel, and a false hope, and a false truth, and they are, they are ruining the lives of people. Men such as Benny Hinn, Joel Olstein, and Ole Roberts, and others proclaiming their their false hope gospels. And people in mass follow these men. And they follow them because of their ignorance of God's word, because of their ignorance of God's truth and God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes in verses 1 through 3, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. And Paul could make this statement for he knew what he was talking about. He was that zealous Israelite who was ignorant of Christ and his righteousness. And on the road to Damascus, Christ revealed himself unto unto Saul And Saul was forever changed. But he was was zealous. So we see Saul's condition. And this morning, some of us may be here and and we may be in this sinful condition today, this, this unregenerate condition. You may be a churchgoer, you may go to church every Sunday, you may be faithful to your church. Paul said, I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. My dear friends, it's not whether or not you're in church every Sunday, but you should be. It's whether or not you've been saved that matters. Has Jesus saved your souls this morning? So we see Saul's condition. But then secondly, I want us to notice Saul's conversion In this story, we see the conversion of Saul. Again, in Acts chapter 9, and verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick. Against the pricks. Now this issue of conversion is more volatile than it may seem on the surface. While approximately 90% of the earth's population believe in God, there are more than 3,500 different doctrinal beliefs concerning eternal life. Wars have begun over this issue. Countless numbers of women Men, women, and children have been put to death over these issues. Families are torn apart over this. Scripture is very clear on the facts surrounding salvation. But once again, men are, men are ignorant of Scripture. And furthermore, they refuse to accept God's testimony concerning salvation. We see this today, even in, even in, our, in our, many of our Baptist circles. Historical Baptist theology is being corrupted today by tenets of the Arminian doctrine. The winds of decisional regeneration have swept through our Baptist churches via the conduit of the hyper-fundamental Neo-Baptists of the 21st century. We have been cautioned and admonished to contend for our doctrines. In uh, Jude's book, verse 3, he states, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me... to to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So we must hold to the truths that were delivered to the disciples by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this certainly applies to salvation. Now I'd like for you to notice with me three very important truths confirmed in Saul's conversion this morning. First, that is God is sovereign in Salvation. In Acts chapter 9, we read it earlier, verses 3 and 4. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Let me say right now, Saul was not seeking for Christ. Saul hated Christ. He despised the Christian faith. He was not seeking Christ. He was not looking to get saved. He in his lost condition was, as all other men are, dead in sin, blinded to the truth of the gospel, and unconcerned for his spiritual well-being. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we read, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. It was not Saul that sought for God. It was God that sought for Saul. And in John 15, in verse 16, the Savior states, "Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go forth, go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, He may give it you. Yes, it is God that chooses. It is God that calls. It is God that saves. And in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we see this truth evidently displayed. It is clear and obvious that Saul was making no effort at all to find salvation. Salvation found him. So God is sovereign in salvation. Then secondly, God defeats the grip of death. God defeats the grip of death. In verse 5 of chapter 9 of Acts, we read, And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Notice the response of Saul to the Lord. Who art thou, Lord? It is important for us to note that Paul, at this moment, did not know the Lord. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we read in the first two verses, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit That now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, there is one thing you must remember about a dead man. A dead man cannot hear, he cannot be aware of his surroundings, he cannot make any choices. He is dead. And such was Saul in a spiritual sense. He was dead in trespasses and sins. Saul did not know who Jesus was because Saul was dead. It was not until God actually quickened or made alive Saul that he heard and saw Jesus. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, we read, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. But now the grip of death over Saul has been defeated by God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 through 57, we see, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God has defeated death, and death has no grip on you and I. Friday we laid Lorraine to her rest. And I read this verse at the tomb with, with Mac and the children. And we rejoice in the fact that death has no grip over Lorraine. Lorraine is alive and well today. She's in the presence of the Lord. Oh, death, where's your sting? Hey, death. Lorraine can stand in heaven right now and go, Hey, death, nah, 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 nah. Because death has no power over her. God took the grip of death and said, no more for his children. Oh yes, we see. That's what it is for me today. Death has no power over me. The grave will not be able to hold me. Because God has defeated the grip of death. But not only do I want us to see that that God is sovereign In salvation, and that he defeated the grip of death. But thirdly, I want us to see that God is irresistible in grace. He's irresistible in grace. In verse 5 of Acts chapter 9, And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now look closely at the phrase we just read. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The word kick here is the Hebrew word, laktizo. And that literally means to show strong objection or repugnance. It is manifested in vigorous opposition or resistance. It means to be obstinately disobedient. And listen, that's exactly what you and I were before we were saved. We were obstinate toward God. We were repugnant toward, toward Christ. And then, and then notice the word pricks. It's the Hebrew word kentron. And it is used figuratively of divine impulse. And when put together, Jesus is using this illustration to help Saul understand that it is useless to attempt to resist his calling. Oh, foolish man that we are, as we go through our life, believing that we are in control. When in reality, it is God who is in control of all things. For by him all things consist. He is before all things. Oh, yes. Who art thou, Lord, was Paul's response. God's grace is irresistible just as it is senseless and useless. What Jesus is saying is, Saul, just as senseless and useless it is for an ox to kick back against the goads of the ox cart, so it is useless for man to resist the calling and the urging of God. In translation, Christ is telling Saul that he cannot resist the impulse to obey and follow him. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned that our Baptist doctrine today is corrupted by Arminian theology. And there are two tenets in the Arminian's theology. Tenet number three is this. Man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary unto faith or any good deed. And that sounds okay. But then tenet four says, this grace may be resisted. In other words... The Arminian believes that Jesus died to save all men, but some men will reject Jesus. But in reality, that would make man's will superior to Jesus' death, would it not? And we know that nothing on this earth is more powerful than the shed blood of Christ. We cannot resist the grace of God. Jesus has set it in his heart to save us, and we are saved by his divine impulse. And Jesus said, Saul, I'm going to save you, and kicking against the goats isn't going to help you a bit. God's grace is irresistible. Have you ever wondered why anyone would reject salvation? I have. I've remained dumbfounded for years over this one thing. But then I learned the truth of the doctrines of grace. And I now realize that all whom God has desired to save, he saves. And those whom God does not call to repentance will not repent. So from Saul's conversion, we see that God is sovereign in salvation. He has defeated the grip of death and his grace is irresistible. Now, lastly this morning, I want to conclude by taking a look at Saul's commitment. We've looked at his condition. We've seen his conversion. Now, I'd like to look at a moment at his commitment. In Acts 9, 6, we read, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Here again, we find a truth that fosters debate, that of the perseverance of the saints. God did not save me for my benefit. He saved me for his own purpose and his own glory. God saved Saul for a purpose, and he has saved you today also for a purpose. Notice the very first words out of Saul's mouth. Once God saved his wretched soul, they were, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Here was a man who before sought to destroy Christ. Now he seeks to serve Christ. Hence the new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. God has saved Saul. And now Saul wants to serve God. Far too many supposed Christians today are doing absolutely nothing for God. They don't tithe, they don't witness, they don't serve. In fact, sometimes you can't even tell that they're a Christian. This is exactly what James was referring to in his scriptures. When he wrote, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. Today, Christians, do not make today, Christian, do not make boast of your faith if it abides alone. James is saying that he proves his faith by his works. He is not trusting in his works for justification. He is simply stating that the works he does is evidence of his faith. Now in this We are not talking about salvation. For we all know that salvation comes by the gift of faith given us by God. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. However, in this day of easy believism, our pulpits are offering men a social gospel. One that does not involve any commitment. They say God will accept you just as you are. You don't need to make any changes. Just come as you are. And that sounds real good, by the way. But that's what my grandma used to call hogwash. You see, this, this is not all about you and I making God an offer that he must or must not accept. God doesn't have to take me just as I am. He chose to take me just as I am. I I grow weary of men that claim to be saved and and lay out of church. I I grow weary of men that claim to be saved and, 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 and fail to do their part in the local church. To serve and to honor God with their tithes and with their talents. Saul made a commitment. Saul made a commitment, and he kept that commitment to the end. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Saul made a commitment to God on on the road to Damascus. Jesus came to Saul. And he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul was saved and he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And from that moment until the moment the axeman's head removed Paul's head from his body, Paul was faithful to his commitment to the Lord. At no place in the scripture do we see where paul was not faithful to god a new creature are you a new creature today have you been saved if you haven't been saved nothing i said after the in this in this sermon will make any sense to you because until we are born again we cannot receive the things of god Have you been saved? Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? If you have, are you living for the Lord? Are you serving him? Are you that new creature? Or are you still the same old creature just with some new makeup on? Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now in a moment of prayer. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would challenge us, that you would stir us. I pray that you would cause us to become that new creature, just like Saul, who became Paul and lived his life unto in your service. I pray you'd make us, help us to be transformed to that new creature today. And Lord, if there are any here that are not saved, I pray that they would come under the conviction of thy Holy Spirit and that you would save them. We thank you for this time that we've had together around your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would have glorified Christ in our, in our preaching today. And we now ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts and minds, that you would cause us to do those things Today, that we must do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?